in order for you and me to devise some kind of method or strategy to offset some of the events or re a repetition of the events that have taken place here in Los Angeles recently, we have to go to the root. We have to go to the cause. Dealing with the condition itself is not enough. And it is because of our effort toward getting straight to the root that people oftentimes think we are dealing in hate. We are oppressed. We are exploited. We are downtrodden. We are denied not only civil rights, but even human rights. So the only way we're going to get some of this oppression and exploitation away from us or aside from us is come together against the common enemy. <laughs> Who taught you to hate the texture of your hair? Who taught you to hate the color of your skin to such extent that you bleach to get like the white man? Who taught you to hate the shape of your nose and the shape of your lips? Who taught you to hate yourself from the top of your head to the soles of your feet? Who taught you to hate your own kind? Who taught you to hate the race that you belong to? So much so that you don't want to be around each other. No, before you come asking Mr. Muhammad, does he teach hate, you should ask yourself, who taught you to hate being what God gave you? And I, for one, as a Muslim, believe that the white man is intelligent enough. If he were made to realize how black people really feel and how fed up we are without that old compromising sweet talk, stop sweet talking him. Tell him how you feel. Tell him how, what kind of hell you've been catching and let him know that if he's not ready to clean his house up, if he's not ready, to clean his house up. He shouldn't have a house. It should catch on fire and burn down. What's happening, everybody? Welcome to volume three of No Justice, No Peace amplifying black and POC voices during this revealing time in American history. Thanks for tuning in. I'm coming to you from Portland, Oregon, and you just heard Malcolm X's speech on police brutality from 1962. If you don't do any digging or researching on Malcolm X, I think he's sold to many people as this malicious version of, of Martin Luther King Jr. or labeled by some as a terrorist even at that time, making him out to be this angry black man because he was no longer interested in seeing his oppressor use excessive force against the black community any longer. And they made him out to be this man preaching violence because they feared that he was gaining too much power and he was opening too many eyes to the bullshit that was happening to black people and unfortunately still is. And, and it's just so wild to see the relevance of his messages and other messages from the past in these current times. It always kind of blows my mind, especially when it comes to civil liberties and, and freedoms and things of that nature and it seems that there will always be injustices to, to speak and sing about but I'm hopeful that we are witnessing a turning point that reflects on those injustices and significantly decreases their occurrences if you're new to this series the idea of this is to offer perspective to give a platform to black people and people of color to share their experiences of being a person of color in America. And I appreciate you tuning in. This has been a tremendous way for me to process everything going on around me currently. And it fuels my desire to, to learn more. And we will hear messages and responses from some contributors shortly. 
and I definitely encourage you to check out the previous volumes of this series to hear the voices of previous contributors as well and uh, just to gain a little more context for what I am doing here as I've previously explained in the prior volumes but before we jump in to this week's messages I just want to share a couple things one being that if you are only watching the news to find out what is happening with these protests in the Black Lives Matter movement I think you're seeing a different narrative than what is happening or at least from what I have observed myself being out there it has been really interesting to me the amount of people that have reached out to me that do not live in the Portland area and ask me if I'm doing okay how I'm doing because everything they're seeing on the news about Portland is that there are riots in the streets and protesters are being unruly with officers and I think most of that is pretty inaccurate these marches that I have attended are peaceful and the gatherings at the end of the marches are informative and full of hope for change and I think the news just magnifies these small incidents to sell it as the protesters are destroying neighborhoods and hassling authorities and in inviting officers to use force and just completely overlooks the idea of any agitators inserting themselves into these protests to uh to to turn it into a riot or make it appear to be one so uh maybe don't react to everything that you're seeing on the mainstream media coverage of these protests and maybe actually just show up to one and, and see what's happening and uh i think you will find it to be very uplifting or at least uh that is the feeling that i have uh walked away with from these gatherings and marches that i have showed up to and i i think that you will observe a much different narrative than what might be being portrayed the next thing i want to get into is the wild disregard that some of these elected officials have for people's equality and their needs and especially in some of these smaller forms where they can clearly hear the concerns of the citizens and the things that they want changed in their neighborhoods or in this case their school district when it comes to Connie Bernard whom is or was on the school board for East Baton Rouge Louisiana depending on when you are listening to this I have a feeling Connie won't hold that position very much longer. But uh, this clip I'm going to play is from a board meeting, and you're going to hear Gary Chambers Jr. talk about why it is important to rename this school that is named after Robert E. Lee. Connie had previously made comments about this issue and, and kind of disregarded the concerns community members had in the past. Also, spoiler alert, Connie was caught online shopping on a computer for dresses while uh, these people were trying to address real issues, sacrificing, you know, their time to show up to these school board meetings. And uh, Connie just wasn't interested in hearing it, uh, nor nor did she have the, the decency to even stick around while uh, Gary Chambers Jr. was speaking to her she walked out in the middle of this so this is gary chambers jr going in on connie so i had intended to get up here and talk about how racist robert e lee was but i'm gonna talk about you connie sitting over there shopping while we talking about robert e lee this is a picture of you shopping while we talking about racism and history in this country only white members of this board got up while we were up here talking too because you don't give a damn and it's clear but I'm going to tell you what the slaves, my ancestors, said about Robert E. Lee, since you don't know history, sister. Let me tell you that they said when he got the plantation, after he got off the field where 27,000 people died at Gettysburg, Connie, Robert E. Lee was a brutal slave master. Not only did when he whooped the slaves, he said, lay it on them hard. After he said, lay it on them hard, he said, put brine on them, sort of burn them. That's what Robert E. Lee did. 
and you set your arrogant self in here and sit on there shopping while the pain and the hurt of the people of this community is on display because you don't give a damn and you should resign. You should have resigned two years ago when you choked a white man in his house. You should have resigned two weeks ago when you got on TV and said foolishness. And you should walk out of here and resign and never come back because you are the example of racism in this community. You are horrible. Not to the rest of the board. You have an obligation to the people of this community. And 81% of them are black. And do you need a Klan rally outside, Mr. Godet, before you end it? Because holding it up means that you put that building in jeopardy. You do, sir. Because all over the country, they're burning stuff down. And black folks in this city have stood with protesters. I ain't seen you elected officials out there with them, making sure that nothing goes south in Baton Rouge. It's been folks in this community who give a damn, not just when it's comfortable, but every time. And four years ago, we came down here. Mr. Drake, they say you're a good man. Be a good man. Black folks say you're a good man. White folks say you're a good man. Your legacy is attached to tonight, brother. Your legacy. Now, let me say to the black members of the board, it's the most solidarity I've seen out of y'all in forever. Let's keep that. Let's stand on this moving forward. Because we don't need to apologize for Connie, Evelyn. She showed you who she was when she was sitting next to you while you were talking shopping. You don't need another example. Now, when do we as Baton Rouge stop being in 1856? If you want to name the building after somebody, how about PBS Pinchback, the first black governor of the state of Louisiana, when he was governor during Reconstruction? You want another name? Oscar Dunn, who was the lieutenant governor of the state of Louisiana in the 1860s that gave the right for Darius Landis and Don Collins and, and Evelyn Ware Jackson and Tramiel Howard to get here. You want to name it after somebody from Reconstruction? Name it after the people who fought for abolition of slavery. If you want to name it after somebody, out of the right people, the people who are on the right side of history. But it's your ancestor that the school is named after. So you're holding on to your heritage. But we built this joint for free. Thank and we've done begging you to do what's right. Let's go ahead and cue the, the music for Connie. Uh, it does appear that Connie is about to lose her job as the president of the school board has called for Connie's resignation. So we will see how that all shakes out. It's wild that this is all happening during the 4th of July weekend. I'm not sure why so many people think that it is un-American to be out fighting against the oppression and the, the deep racism that is rooted in, in this country whether it's conscious or subconscious, it is there. And many black people have been fighting against these injustices for their entire existence in this country, for some of them over 50 years, 70 years. And uh, one of those people is Cornell West. And I really dug some of the things he had to say when speaking with Anderson Cooper recently in regards to the movement and the... George Floyd funeral. So it was a heavy day, my brother. And uh, yet, I was buoyed up because I saw in the hearts and minds and souls, not just of the Floyd family, but of the church, of the music, the preaching, a love, not one reference to hatred or revenge. It was all about love and justice. It's in the great tradition of the best of black people, a people who have been hated chronically, systemically for 400 years, but have taught the world so much about love and how to love. You saw John Coltrane's love supreme in that church service. You saw the love of the children on Marvin Gaye's What's Going On and Toni Morrison's Beloved. You saw Mama raising in the sun of Lorraine Hansberry. White America ought to give black people a standing ovation that after 400 years of being terrorized, we refuse to create a black version of the Ku Klux Klan. After 400 years of being traumatized, we want to dish out healers. That's Frederick Douglass. That's Martin King. That's Curtis Mayfield. That's 
Fannie Lou Hamer, what is it about these black people so thoroughly subjugated but want freedom for everybody? That's a grand gift to the world right in the bowels at the center of an American empire that has enslaved Jim Crow, Jane Crow, lynched them, still dishing out these love warriors. That's what I saw in the Floyd family, and I was buoyed up. It reminded me of the West family. It reminded me of Irene and Cliff, and Cliff and Cynthia and Cheryl. That's where we come from, Shiloh Baptist Church. You can put us down, but you're not going to put us down in such a way that we're going to hate you because you become the point of reference. No, we're going to put a smile on Larsenia's face. That's his mama. That's where he is right now. Mm. He's lying right next to Sister Larsenian, who, 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 whose way of engaging the world was embracing it with all the love. Now, I'm not saying we don't have black thugs and gangsters. I'm talking about the best of our tradition. Because brother, 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 if we had created a black version of the Ku Klux Klan that had been a civil war every generation with terrorist cells in every hood, and that's what Brother Trump needs to understand, because it looks like he's trying to push us to the race war. But the good news is, if there was a race war, we got a whole lot of white brothers and sisters on our side now. That makes a big difference. And we got black folk and red folk and, and indigenous peoples and Asians and so forth. This is a matter of integrity and honesty, a matter of justice and love. They kept it on the high Ground. That was a beautiful thing. But I did break, though, brother. When I saw those brothers marching in, like the ushers in Shiloh Baptist Church, and pick up that coffin and go and walk out. My daughter was there. Couldn't take it, man. I've been at this for over 50 years. And yet, I got to bounce back. And I will bounce back because we got a love that the world can't take away. The world white supremacy may make being black a crime, but we refuse to get in the gutter. We gonna go down swinging like Ella Fitzgerald, Muhammad Ali, in the name of love and justice. We doing it for Brother Wyatt. We doing it for my daughter. We doing it for the Asians. We doing it for the whole world because that's the only hope of the world. And that kind of love is always tragic, comic, and cruciform. You got to get ready to get crucified with that kind of love, and yet you keep dishing it on generation after generation after generation. The Floyd family lifted up that spiritual, moral banner in the midst of a moment in which we got all these lies and crimes, be it Pentagon, the, the, the Pentagon or, or Wall Street or White House or even Congress itself. We know they don't represent the best of this country. It's just that the best of this country right now seems to be so powerless, but in the streets of, the, of our nation, we see this multiracial, multi cultural, multi-gender, different sexual orientations, different religions, Jewish brothers and sisters holding up Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, the Catholics holding up Dorothy Day, the Protestants holding up William Coffin and Lydia Maria Child, and the agnostics and the others holding up the Norman Thomases and the Edward Zaids and others. That was my mixed wrestling with what I saw today, my brother. And, uh, I think we've got hope in the form of motion, but we got to get ready for the backlash. We got to get ready for the neo-fascist clampdown because it's coming. It is coming. I love his mentions of the musicians like Marvin Gaye and Ella Fitzgerald and the athletes, Muhammad Ali. I spoke at the top of volume one of this project about how much music has offered me a lens into these marginalized communities and one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately is what a hard time I have understanding anyone that claims to be fans of these people or root for the black athlete and they accept them as entertainers but have no interest in their well-being and it just seems very backwards and gross to me to enjoy someone's art or appreciate what an unreal athlete they are and uh, then just have no no compassion for their day-to-day well-being or their societal needs, especially with the music. 
because it's clearly in the messages of the music. So I don't I don't, I don't really understand what part of that those people align with when the message is so rooted in the music. I think it just really bums me out that there's so many people out there who can't see what an injustice this all is. And I think it's probably easy not to see it when your life is not affected by it. But I think it's time for those people to find some new lenses and uh, find some perspective. It's all around you. It's all around us. And I don't understand why you would want to raise future generations within the current system. And anybody preaching this Blue Lives Matter shit is out to fucking lunch. There is no such thing as a blue life. That is a uh, a job that you choose to do. You choose to put on that that blue shirt. So maybe go ahead and put that that argument to rest or that uh, that statement and hashtag because it is not a choice to be black in this country or in this world and it's a very gross comparison or rebuttal to Black Lives Matter. I will put a link in the episode notes for anyone looking for reputable organizations to donate to to help the Black Lives Matter movement or other organizations that align with similar values. And I will also put links for all the video clips shared this week as well. I once again want to thank all these people that have chosen to participate in this project. It is an incredibly vulnerable thing. I especially appreciate the people I am strangers to that have chosen to participate in this. I have learned so much already from doing just these three volumes of this series. And I really would love to keep this thing going. So if you want to share a message, a perspective, experiences, your words, please do send me an email or DM me. I will make sure that those links are in the episode notes as well so you can get in contact with me. The music that you're going to be hearing throughout the messages shared this week are from Portland, Oregon beat maker and producer Mike Mo Beats. I met Mike out at last year's Pickathon Music Festival, which is just outside of Portland, Oregon. He was DJing for the amazing Karma Rivera, and he just seemed like a really great dude, nice dude, and I really appreciate Mike allowing me to use his music for this project and I encourage you to check out his full catalog of music, which I will also put the link for in the episode notes. So get with that. Stay up. Stay tuned. Be well. And don't be a fucking racist. Let's get into it. My name is Danielle Grubb. I'm 27. I was born in Washington, D.C. I currently live in Plano, Texas, and I am a musician, songwriter, and producer. I grew up in Plano, Texas, in Dallas, Texas. And the neighborhood I grew up in was multicultural, and it wasn't until I was 18 that I experienced racism in New York City. I found it odd that in such a melting pot of a city that I'd be followed through a convenience store, that I'd be fetishized by others. I didn't think about my skin color until I went to college, but because other POC would question my blackness. I think non-POC need to understand that what is happening is a result of years of pain and systemic stagnance. 
I saw a POC online posting about how the Confederate flag is just as triggering as the Nazi flag, and a non-POC stepped in to say that they were wrong. This didn't make sense to me because this is a truth born from experience. I think that non-POC need to listen and hear the pain of POC. They need to work to change their minds and the minds of their peers and educate themselves on the struggle of POC people. A lot of allies have been foregoing their daily updates to post information for bail funds, local politicians, they've been using socials to help spread information. I think that this is very helpful, but I think what hurts is not being that vocal in your daily life and conversations, because the problem is with the individual as well. We can make systemic changes by supporting education. There are too many fluctuations in the education system in our country. Different places get different textbooks, some outdated. I think we need to make education a freedom. Everyone should be able to have a strong education. It should be free and it shouldn't differ. We can also make changes by having conversations with the individual. We can also make changes by learning to heal and unlearning toxic traits that further divide us racially, socially, and economically. It all starts with a change in perspective from the individual. I think that our whole political system needs to be restructured. I'm not sure if another president is what the country needs. I think we need equal representation for every voice. I think I would like to see less police, less prisons, and more support from local politicians. But I think to make these changes, we have to voice that we want them. And to me, no justice, no peace means that our voices will not rest or be silenced until these changes occur. My name is Danny. Uh, I perform in uh, Seattle under the name Danny Denial and uh, with my band Dark Smith. And uh, I'm based in Seattle, Washington. And I'm a musician and filmmaker. I would say that my experience being a person of color in America has been complicated, uh, I think confounded by all the other parts of, of me. Um, being a musician, being in the alternative music scene, um, being uh, a queer person, being um, in a overwhelmingly white community. Um, it's so it's 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 more complicated, I think, than maybe the experiences of other um, black people in America. Um, I've definitely had a thorny time of participating in spaces where I am not made to uh, feel welcome or that I'm um, not supposed to be operating in, in spaces, particularly in alternative and punk music and, uh, uh, and other things that are deemed white or for white people. Um, and in a lot of ways, uh, I was, you know, um, I was definitely I struggled with my racial identity a lot as a, as a kid, and uh, where I've gotten to now in my life, being um, in my late 20s, is uh, that I'm actually pretty affirmed in, in who I am, and, um, and actually a lot of my dissonance in my own identity has kind of informed my point of view as a writer um, and an artist, and I'm quite grateful to um, have that scope. Uh, of alienation kind of as my background um, but yeah I mean the color of my skin is something that informs everything that I do uh, it affects every, it affects every every day in some shape or form uh, whether it's you know feeling uh, more cautious or more prone to being paranoid in spaces especially when you're in um, places outside of the, the greater city, you know, uh, I've, I've played shows in uh, out of town or kind of middle of nowhere places where uh, I felt um, my guard was up and I, and, uh, and, you know, actually me and my bandmate had a situation where we were, we were um, kind of taunted and, and, and followed by uh, a bunch of people in a truck who were calling us names. Um, so it's very real. I think it's something that um, you, you, you become gaslit into thinking that you're paranoid um, and you have to sort of be affirmed in, in your own sense of uh, 
perception and what's really happening and not let people kind of, um, you know, talk you down and tell you that you have no reason to be scared or fear for your life because I think the fears are very real. Um, I, I did a visual album two years ago called Death Heads USA that was very much about all of these topics. Um, it actually had that experience in Oregon happen with my bandmate Nazmi and um, where we were tailed by a truck um, and called racial uh, slurs. And then I watched the movie Green Room where a band was um, kidnapped and it was a band of white kids and it felt like the story would have been so much more impactful if it was people who looked like us. Um, I think the thing that, you know, non, uh, non-POCs, white people uh, should understand right now is uh, that this isn't an us or them thing per se. Uh, it's, it's really, um, you know, I, I love my white friends and I'm very grateful for the people who have um, been out at the protests every day fighting, standing side by side with me, um, volunteering their bodies, you know, uh, as safeguards in instances that I've dealt with firsthand. You know, it's just a thing of not being concerned with your, the way you are coming across and, and, and how this affects you and maybe taking a step back and trying to listen to other people. Uh, all that we can ask the people who haven't had this experience is to be willing to open your ears and mind to listen. Um, no one's expecting white people to understand fully what the experience of being a person of color is. It's not possible if you haven't lived it. Um, it's just an openness to understanding. You know, I was assigned male at birth, so I can never fully understand, you know, being a woman in America or, or being, um, you know, female presenting. Um, and it's something that I try to um, learn about constantly and listen. Um, and I think the same can be applied um, here. I think that, you know, the ways that we can you know, perpetuate systemic change is um, just by giving people with, with voices um, who aren't given platforms, who are gatekeeped out of positions of power, letting them use their voice, listening to their voices. I think we're seeing some of that, but I think a lot of it's performative. And quite honestly, if it's not going to be done in a real way, it's actually patronizing and frustrating. Um, it doesn't help to be lumped in a list with other people. It doesn't help to, you know, um, be given a megaphone just because you're a black person. It's, it's about actually wanting to see and hear people that have different experiences than you. Um, and I really hope that, you know, what we see in the next coming months are, are uh, people like me and others in the community um, being taken seriously and, and, and being able to be um, formidable, formidable figureheads and, and across the board in the arts, in politics. Um, I think it's really important that we diversify, um, you know, the, the people in positions of power and I think that's the hardest thing people in my position, specifically artists, have. And I hope that what we're seeing right now is in a bunch of virtue signaling and um, a phase. And I hope it's the start of long-term systemic change. But most importantly, what I would really like to see is real reform done uh, in legislation. And um, let's take funds out of, out of the police force and put it into the community, specifically the black community, which has been underfunded and under um, underserved for far too long. Um, now whether that's going to be a short-term possibility or a long-term one, I don't know, um, but I hope that um, we're at least making strides towards it. My name is Mario Sunday Rudd, age 38. I was born in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. I live in Portland, Oregon now. I'm a musician. It's mostly trip hop music. 
First question, what has been your experience growing up and living as a POC in America? It's been a wakeful experience being raised by many different people of all types of backgrounds, including Korean and some people from Belize. I was in a POC group in, in high school. It's been like a, you know, it's been a well-rounded experience in several places. How often do you think your skin color, think about your skin color throughout the day? I think about it most when the sunshine hits it. So as often as the sunshine hits it, that's as much as I think about it. Right, over 10 years ago or more, I've been taken in for fitting the description before any kind of localized witness or authority coming through to disprove my um, situation. I ended up having to take a polygraph test to get me out of there. It was over a month and a half being uh, behind bars because of this, just for looking like somebody, just for looking. I asked the public defender myself on a whim to give me a polygraph to get me the hell out of there. Question number five, what do you think non-POCs need to know right now? I think they should try to intentionally be more inclusive in their rec recreation and whatever happenings around their life they, that they would include others in, you know, and try to be mindful and think about that sort of thing. And not just during like injustice or call to actions, you know, situations like normal life too. You need to normalize like us existing, like other people existing, and not just like when we're in angry and call to actions when we're about to die and police brutality and stuff like that. No one's always gonna feel or hear or see what you internalize. So you gotta remember that when you come in contact and run into another person. So you have to, it's like creating change. It's that old cliche, it starts with you because your reaction outwardly is gonna be crucial to someone's interaction with you. So that's part of change. That's just like a general part of change right there. This is number eight. What do you want to see from people in a position of authority to, gain, to regain trust of the community? I've made a general answer. It's like show up and eat and shoot the, shoot the poop with everyone around, you know, get to know normal people, regular people, because a lot of people in uncivil positions, I guess you would say they're not civilians or kind of outside, you know, the thought of regular people. They could volunteer, make it, you know, just like that road trip that they take in that castle on wheels, you know, go around and see what's going really actually going on. You know, these are like old cliches, but this is what regular people do before things turn to garbage wherever they live and uh as for the current president i think he needs to go and move in putin's uh spare room in the house local politicians maybe window shop with your local population and walk around every neighborhood with no cameras see if someone asks you and wonder why you're walking around and see if they recognize you you know number nine says what is just no justice no peace mean to you my answer to that is that you're going to have to find a way to squeeze and hug each other. It's going to be difficult. My name is Natasha Cote. I'm 29 years old and I'm from Oklahoma City. And I currently live in Edmond, Oklahoma, which is this suburb of white flight just out of Oklahoma City. I'm an ABA therapist for children with behavioral and mental health issues. My experience, it's been, man, it's been rough. My parents are amazing. Um, I'm a first-generation Ghanaian-American um, who grew up in Edmond, Oklahoma. So I, I, you know, I had privilege growing up. My parents worked their asses off. It's a typical immigrant story. 
they worked their asses off to give us a, the best life that they could and they did an outstanding job still growing up in Edmond as an African um, kid still in my blackness in my black skin I didn't have um, really a bearing of my identity am I black American am I African I'm American what does all of that mean to me especially growing up under parents who who have not really a sense of American culture so I struggled with my identity and you know my identity has become um, a huge part of me and being comfortable in my identity I think it's almost like my personality. Um, anyone who knows me knows that I'm really, really um, strong in my black womanness, my Africanness. Uh, but it, it really, it really came from a a hard, challenging um, space. You know, I know I'm not. Um, diasporic of diasporic ancestry you know my my ancestors weren't enslaved by Europeans in this country so it's not accurate for me to even identify as black American um, I oftentimes don't feel completely American either because my parents aren't from here even though that was the whole point of this country, I guess, is what they tell they tell us, that people can be whoever they wanna be within boundaries. But uh, yeah, I experienced a lot of challenges. I wasn't black enough to be a black American. I was white. I. I had that, I had that like whole, you're not black, 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 or you're an Oreo or whatever, whatever the shit that, that um, they put on me uh, growing up and well into my adulthood, I must say. Um, but at the end of the day, I can't take my skin off. I'm still black. Um, that is who I am and that's who I've always been um, I didn't realize that it was a point of shame until I was about eight years old though like was it on the playground which the more I talk about it with with other people um, who are black I hear that many of our first experience being called nigger was on the playground uh, a place for for play and just genuine happiness and being a kid and being free that's where I learned that I couldn't be free um, was playing soccer girls against boys which is what we do and this redhead kid his name was this little white kid Austin he um he he was troubled looking back he was definitely troubled but he was a bully he was rude he had a chip on his damn shoulder he he was always you know not paying attention in class he was that kid you know and uh he had cheated during soccer he used his hands I remember and I called him out I was like you just cheated man I saw you and he responded uncreatively and without any accountability of his cheating well at least I'm not an n-i-g-g-e-r and he spelt it out just like that and I I just kind of shrugged it off because I didn't know what the fuck he was talking about so I took that story home to my mom I was like what's a nigger and 
you know, she had to interrogate and I had to explain, okay, what happened? And she took me back to school and went to the principal's office and made sure to make the right people aware of what was going on. And I remember he apologized to me, but that was it. He never talked to me again, really, or bothered with me. But um, I learned that my blackness was something to be ashamed of in the face of this kid who was cheating, he was white. Like he could get away with that, it was fine for him because he wasn't an N-I-G-G-E-R. That's when I learned it. That's when I learned that. I didn't quite understand like I do now, but I knew more than enough. Um, and that was my experience, you know, like in Edmond, Oklahoma. There were other first-gen African kids there. There are other black kids at the school. We were very much a minority, but still, many, many of my classmates, I'm sure if I asked them now, and I'd love to, my black classmates would say they had similar experiences. You know, like my skin color goes with me wherever I go. It's, it's not like I think about it throughout the day but you know it's a part of my identity so it's just a part of sometimes I mean I think it's just a part of the way I think I don't know how anybody else thinks but I think and perceive in my blackness because that is my reality you know like I I I don't know. You know, I go into clients' homes at work and I know that they see me, their parents see me, I'm a black therapist and I can only imagine what they perceive. It's it's something that goes with me everywhere. I go into people's homes and I'm thinking, okay, they see a black therapist. One of my clients actually, he was just having a temper tantrum and he said, I don't want to work with you anymore. I believe that you are discriminating against me because I am white. And this is a 16 year old who doesn't really have access to social media. And all I can think of as I see, you know, dad has some like Trump stickers in the house. I'm thinking, well, who else would he have heard this from? You know, like I just, I can't not think of my blackness. It is a part of who I am. And it is a very, it's a point of pride from what used to be a point of shame. Um, and I am not ashamed to feel in blackness or to think in my blackness. But I mean, I mean, it's become a part of my psyche when I am offered an opportunity, I think, is this because I'm talented? Oh, let me back it up. When I'm offered an opportunity by a white person, I think, is this because I'm talented? Or is this because I'm a number and I'm black and I, I fill a role and I, I, make, I make the team look more diverse and even though a lot of the white people are very good-willed and I have many talents um, and I've worked really hard for them and that is who I am, I can't help but wonder, no matter how much schooling, no matter how much experience, no matter how much practice, I can't help but wonder, is, is this because I'm black? And that's, that's my skin color coming and going with me everywhere I go. I can't take it off. And I'm trying to remove myself from having that mindset. And it's really rough because, I mean, it's 2020 and re regardless of the time, because this is what our nation's always been about, 
this is just it is what it is <laughs> non-pocs white people let's just be real white people need to know when to shut the fuck up and when to speak very loudly at the same time they need to know when to open their purse and exactly who to open their purse for and I think white people are hearing that right now and they're scrambling like, oh my God, there's just so much. I'm overwhelmed. Like, should I say something? Shouldn't I? Like, and it's, it's, it's just a matter of listening, of respecting. I mean, there hasn't been a time in this country that black people haven't fucking marched. I mean, all the way back to the plantations back to this the ships that brought black people here the protest the act of flinging yourself off of this ship there hasn't been a time when black people haven't stood up and against uh the injustices the oppression books have been written music literature uh movies um, we literally tell you we've been marching there have been videos circulating of people being lynched being killed being murdered by police for years why now white people why now what is it about 2020 and why should I feel any type of like like excitement because you've learned some basic fucking shit that we've been saying it's like it's like racism 101 oh i just realized i had privilege like i'm not trying to i i i have gratitude for the the big white awakening of 2020 um but it is still frustrating um and there is a lot that can be done with that anger, but it's it's time for white people to reach out and talk to their family members. It's time for white people to um, talk to their, their coworkers, to their HR, to their bosses. It's time for white people to share and build and, and um, give their platforms to people of color and and uh, listen and throw their money at rightful causes and put their bodies on the line um, because we're not going to do this alone and I just hope that the the energy that this great white awakening of 2020 I hope that this energy is is um, going to be kept and it's going to be kept for mass change because we can't do this alone and we've been saying this for a while yes you've you've listened and you're doing so that's great but um we we really need the energy to be kept and i think that white people are doing a lot right now in the movement um, that is helpful I've seen white people put themselves on the front lines and act as a barrier uh, to people of color and the police you know I've I've seen white people go out of their way to make sure that you know they support black owned businesses i just also see that there's a lot of performances going on and we live in this age of social media where so much is about performance and attention and um i'm seeing 
companies do very, very basic shit that makes me feel very uncomfortable because that's not what we're trying to do. Um, I understand the removal of racist images. I understand the removal of racist YouTubers from your platforms. It's it's just hard when it's a PR when I'm seeing it as a PR move and not um, as taking personal accountability and responsibility, particularly when people of color have been putting these people, blasting these people, exposing these people for years. You know, like I, I'm seeing white people talk over black people in the movement. Um, I've, I've been definitely between me and, and some others. I've, I've, I've been person, I've personally dealt with that. I've, I've seen it as well. And I think it's really important for allies to wait to be considered, um, an ally, I don't. I know that sounds kind of wild, but I think it's a term that is just so frivolously given. Um, when, when so many have proven that it's really about them and not about the movement, and I don't know if that's a symptom of whiteness just to center things around around whiteness or the individual. But um, it's time that the people of color and the fighters, it's time that we sort of identify, you know, what's best for us and who who's best for us instead of people who might have ulterior motives and who are there to perform um, self-identifying. Um, I am concerned about, about that. I've seen a lot of it. You have to look in the mirror and name your problem and face your problem and surrender. Give it up. And I think that I think that um, the American government as a whole hasn't done that, never has it done that, because to acknowledge that there is a problem in this country is to acknowledge that big sweeping changes need to happen, that there has to be healing, and our government has capitalized off of systemic oppression and not systemic change. and. Um, until we can give that shit up, our capital up, that power up, um, then we're not going anywhere. Also, I think that we have to invest completely and fully in our children. Our education system is shit. Our healthcare system is shit. We are not investing in our children. And um, so, therefore, we're perpetuating systems that remain the same. We're not empowering children to rise above and make changes and heal. We're empowering them to um, uphold a system that's failed them and failed the masses. That's why we're here in 2020, you know? We're fucked. And, and there's like little glimmers of hope that I try to hold on to. Um, and I don't want anything or anyone to take that away from me, but I can only be so strong, you know? It's the, the rage is just boiling over, you know? Like, you have to, and these, these are the principles of AA to which I am a member of, a recovering alcoholic. Um, you have to look your problem in the mirror Look at your character defects, name them, say them to the people around you, the people you hurt, 
and make changes to healing, jumpstart your healing, if you want to recover, at least the way I've known in, in my alcoholism. And if America wants to recover, they've got, it's got, it's got a reckoning. It's got some reparations, some real, real deep, deep, deep unraveling of the truth of this country. It won't happen. It won't happen unless we're able to give up our power, which is our capital. That's step three. <laughs> I think that people in positions of authority um, have to, again, be completely honest and transparent. And when you have power, it, it like infects your mind. You know, Philip Zimbardo did the Stanford prison experiments that back in like the 70s before there was like much of a research review board and where you could do all this like sh really wild shit in, in human research. Uh, but what he found was that you put people in uniforms, you give them badges, and then you put the same type of group of people in prison, their their orange jumpsuits and put them in a cell you see what that does to a person on both sides and this is across the board and so I don't know how we can change the institution of policing when it was founded on corrupt unjust principles we have to completely just start over. And it's really, it's really, really nice to see that happening right now. Uh, we're having those conversations right now. The president, local politicians, man. We need to see people represented. We need to see people given the space to be represented. You know, Marie Turner in Oklahoma, she just got nominated um, to be House District 88's uh, representative for the Oklahoma um, House of Reps. And she is young, she is black, she is queer, she is Muslim. She is who I want to see representing Oklahoma City, House District 88. Not even my district, but we need representation. You know, how can we, how can you be for us if you don't even know who we are? How can you do for us if you don't even care to know? How can you represent us if you don't represent us, our values, our upbringing, our heritage? You don't even know us. And in Oklahoma and across the country, we're seeing mostly cis, hetero, white men in positions of power like we've always seen because they haven't given it the fuck up and surrendered their power. And as soon as we speak truth to their power, they scramble, get defensive and get upset just like with the police, because they are not willing to give up power that we have so freely given them. So we need to stop giving it to them. And there's more that we can do than just vote. We have to take to the streets. We have to get to City Hall. We have to think in our municipalities. We have to, we have to take our communities back restore our communities we have to educate i mean the corruption is on every level it's in our education they don't want us to be free because they don't want us to be educated it's really bad 
it's particularly bad in the state of Oklahoma. Um, it's bad everywhere, but I can speak to what I know, um, which is a huge reason why I, I want to stay here. No justice, no peace. Again, I um, have been practicing the principles of AA and have been told to practice these principles in all my affairs. So it's just a part of a part of my thinking now. Um, but if you want peace and serenity, you have to go through a very hard truth. You have to have accountability. You have to restore truth to your life. You have to bring yourself justice and those around you. You have to be free in order to gain any type of serenity and we're not going to have any type of, I can't have any peace until, at least in my community, until I know that the children are taken care of, until I know that um, these slaves, the slaves that are in these prisons are freed for nonviolent crimes of disease such as addiction. When I know that that black trans women aren't dying at a being murdered, not just dying, being murdered at dis, dis, disproportional rates. So we can't, we can't be free. We can't have our liberation, which leads to our peace, our serenity. If we don't restore balance and and truth and honesty into any system that we're a part of external or internal and um, I truly truly believe that you know I I don't need to be quiet I don't need to tone myself down I, I'm going to speak with passion I'm going to speak with truth until we have our justice period there's no other way to carve it